Hi everybody, I am Jen Johnson and you are watching Thought by Thought Healing where I like to get on here and talk about chronic pain and symptoms and how to reverse them by understanding the mind-body connection. I come at this from a Christian perspective and so if that is important to you then you should subscribe but I also interview experts in the field and have people share their story of healing and what parts of pain neuroscience and working through our emotions helped them to recover from their symptoms. So without further ado, today I have Eddie Lindenstein who is the host of the Mind and Fitness podcast and he is amazing so stick around and listen. Hi everybody. I am Jen Johnson and this is Thought by Thought Healing and I am so excited to have with me today Eddie Lindenstein who is the host of the Mind and Fitness podcast that I listen to regularly. So Eddie, thanks for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. One of the few people that got the name pronunciation correct the first time. Good job. It's <laughs> funny because I actually over or I heard one of your podcasts maybe like four episodes ago where somebody did it wrong and corrected yeah. me. So I was prepared. <laughs> Well, you well, you've got like the world's easiest name. This, I mean, can anybody even mispronounce your name? Is that even possible? It almost sounds like a fake name. It's so you know, Jennifer Johnson. It's perfect. Yes, yes. Um, also, going to a bank is pretty annoying because there are a million <laughs> Jennifer Johnson. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, um, and my middle name is Michelle. That doesn't make it much better. <laughs> That's funny. Cool. So. Um, yeah so thank you i was looking at your podcast the other day and it looks like you've been going for maybe four and a half years is that about right yeah um it started in i think it was like october of 2017 did three months uh took a hiatus when my youngest daughter audrey was born so i was off for like four months or so four or five months um and then went back and other than the occasional week off like seriously maybe three weeks off total um, it's aired every week since May of 2018. Yeah, that's yeah. very impressive. <clears throat> yeah, it's uh, it's part of the perfectionist personality, which maybe we'll get into it at some point in here. But the weeks where I haven't done it, I have not agonized over the fact that I couldn't find time or whatever to do it. It just it is what it is, and when I I'll do it when I when I can. Yeah, I have been wondering about that as I'm getting started here. Like, how much of this pressure am I going to put on myself to release once a week? Yeah. Um, the perfectionism too. So yeah, yeah, I love that you brought that up. Um, okay. So maybe a month ago I went to the dentist, um, which for everybody watching Eddie and I live actually pretty close to each other. He's in yeah. Edmonds, Edmonds, Seattle area. Yeah. Yep. And I'm also in North Seattle area. So maybe we're like 20 minutes from each other. Um, <laughs> we never met, met in person, but we have chatted over zoom, which was helpful when I was setting this up. Thank you. Um, but so I, I'm going to the dentist and I bring with me David Hanscom's book, his second one, Do You Really Need Spine Surgery or something? And it's sitting in my lap and I sit down and the dental hygienist is like, oh, what's the book you're reading? Is it really good? And I, I have this inner conflict immediately. Like, <laughs> how much am I going to go into what I believe and, yep. and everything related to mind-body syndrome? Um, and I decide I'm going for it. And as soon as I make that decision, I'm regretting it. You know, I'm like, oh no, here we go. <laughs> um, so I say, you know, this is what it is. And um, basically it's this new science, new neuroscience that's proving that our pain has to do with our brain and blah, blah. And she's like, oh, do you, um, do you know Eddie Lindenstein? <laughs> and I'm like, 
yes, actually I do. Um, I'm interviewing him in a few weeks and she's like, oh yeah, I do a CrossFit with him pre COVID or something. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. What's, what's her What's her name? I don't remember. Okay. Well, whatever. That's so funny. Okay, cool. So she, it, I was going to ask you if you could picture who this person was. You'd no. So the problem, the problem is that there's uh, quite a few. So it could be Anna, it could be Gigi, it could like there's a few that it could okay. be. And if I'm sure, if I sat down and I thought about it, there could be even more. But that's so funny. Um, what? Yeah. Which? Well, do you mind me asking which dental office it is? Yes. Um, I just switched, and okay. uh, <laughs> I just switched dentist. It was my second time there. It has a new owner. It's in like like 205th in North Seattle. Yeah. So, well, it's not the one that I go to, which could, could have been one of the names. Um, but that's so funny. It'll come to you. And whenever it comes to you, let me know. Cause that's, that's pretty funny. Great. Um, yeah. So, so she's like, do you know him? And I'm like, absolutely. And she's like, basically you changed her understanding of pain and how to understand her body and working out and all this stuff. So, um, all that to say that you are affecting people near and far which is that's awesome awesome yeah yeah that's awesome and a little bit too of a encouragement i guess you could say for me because take you know saying things to people about this is because it's not traditional medicine it always feels a little risky i, I don't know do you feel that way of like diving into pain with people you don't know you're like how are they going to respond should i do this <clears throat> yeah so um for me it the answer to that question is very contingent on who the audience is, what it is we're talking about, how controversial or in vogue is the particular illness. And I'll give you some mm -hmm. examples is that mm -hmm. in the beginning, when I first learned about this stuff, I was very outward about it. So yeah, meaning unsolicited opinions given by me on Facebook or on whatever, or to family members or whatever. Oh, and the, on Facebook the, too. Well, and the, the backlash was so heavy that I just, I just stopped and my philosophy has evolved into if they come to me, like if they have an example, like the one that you gave about the dental hygienist, if it's somebody that comes to me and says, I'm have like, there's a, a woman, um, Rachel that I know, uh, she's, I think she's 45 or maybe 50 years old. Um, but she's a competitive rower and she's a competitive power lifter. And she had been having nice. problems with elbows, problems with shoulders. And this went on for a long time. So she went from being, very competitive on the national stage to having all these issues and discontinuing a lot of the stuff that she liked doing. Yeah. She sent me a message maybe, I don't know, three years ago or something. And she said, uh, I could have sworn that in the last year you've talked about chronic issues or pain or injuries. <clears throat> Can you tell me a little bit about that? And I, I was very like hush hush and kind of reserved in how I presented it. And I was like, tell me about what your specific problem is. And she gave it to me. And it was something that I had been, I had had quite frequently and with very predictable, like a very predictable calendar almost where I could write down and say on this week, or at least at this month, I will have this injury. And that's the thing that she, that uh -huh. she had. So I explained it to her. I gave her a, a video to watch and a couple of movies and, or uh, sorry, a couple of books to read. She read them. Um, it said it totally changed her and she's now a world champion rower, a world champion power lifter. Um, nice. And so that's usually how it's presented, but there was an instance a few days ago where I just, I'm, I'm trying not to engage uh, on Twitter with people that I don't know, but sometimes I get into it. Um, 
and there was just basically there was a discussion around COVID and how people should live their life and how they you know the the new wave is getting really bad and you should stay in your house and you should not go see people and all this stuff and I I had just said that look that was like really my philosophy until about November of 2021 mm -hmm. and then it was just kind of like my overall risk tolerance was a little higher I was vaccinated I felt comfortable with the things that I was doing and I'm I basically said none of my behaviors have changed. Uh, but how I've thought about the whole situation and just fearing it has changed. I go, you know, and it's exactly how I got over my fear of flying, which I've talked about a lot on the podcast, mm -hmm. but I fly the same amount as I did when I was petrified of flying. The only difference is that instead of me thinking that the plane is going to go down and I'm going to die in a fiery crash, I just told myself, Hey, if the fiery crash happens, there's nothing I can do about it. And whatever happens, happens. And that's just how I'll treat it. Yeah. So I compared it to that. And I just got eviscerated on Twitter for, <laughs> for suggesting sure. that. Because I, the, the people were, were trying, they were saying, well, uh, plane crashes aren't contagious. And I was like, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that I had a fear of flying. I told myself that I can't really manage the outcome anyway. And that's okay. And that totally took away all my anxiety of flying. So it's the same thing with, how I felt about COVID. And I think that actually that attitude, because about two months after I had that, that shift, it entered our house. Everyone in the house got it except me. And I honestly believe that like part of the reason that I was not impacted, because I did not, there was no mitigation. I wasn't wearing a mask. I cuddled my kids. I cuddled my wife. I slept in the same bed. I made them dinner. We watched movies together. I changed nothing and I never got it. Um, and I said like, Maybe science aside, but the, the biggest reason that I think maybe one of the bigger contributing factors why it didn't impact me, um, meaning I didn't get it, is that my nervous system was not all wound up. So if something was to enter my system, it just was much, it, it had more reserves to be able to fight something off because it wasn't worried about the external fears of things I couldn't control anyway. It's like, good luck telling a four-year-old and a seven-year-old, sorry, I can't cuddle with you. You're sick. Or sorry, you can't be yeah. around me. You're sick and locking them in a bedroom or whatever. So I had floated this idea on Twitter in this thread where I was getting trashed. I was just saying, look, like, because people were talking about, you know, you can see on imaging that there's scarring and there's all this bad stuff that's happening to these people. And I had said, you know, imaging doesn't always tell the whole story. <laughs> you like, went for it. <laughs> I'm like, there, there's, there's lots of instances out there of different chronic conditions where people have torn rotator cuffs or torn meniscus or herniated discs or whatever. And half of those people will have pain and the other half won't have pain. So what is the difference in the half that does? Uh, that comment got, I got eviscerated again. Yeah. So, um, so I really only, yeah, I, I really only bring up people that ask me and then I can help them. Yeah. I like that. Um, I have so many things to say with everything you just said. <laughs> um, but let's go with the, I, I've heard people describe mind body syndrome as, um, a fear pandemic. And that so what you were just saying about COVID really resonates with me. And I'm pretty sure this is just going to make half of our watchers really angry and the other half <laughs> like, yes. Um, yeah. And that's, a, that's all right. Um, we're kind of in the business of wrestling with people's mindsets. Yep. Um, but I do, I think that the fear of, I, I don't know, I was reading this. Okay. So during COVID, I went, I would run a lot because you couldn't go to the gym. So I just run in my neighborhood. And when I say a, a lot, I mean like, 
25 whole minutes, <laughs> which is a <laughs> lot for me. <laughs> um, but so I'd run in my neighborhood and, you know, they have those little libraries, um, the little houses with the books in them. And I got, yeah. and, and there was one in there that looked like it was pretty much mind, body syndrome, neuroplastic pain, whatever. So I pulled one out and took it. I, I ran back with it. Um, and I've been reading it lately and she, um, quotes this study where they injected like adrenaline, just a tiny bit of adrenaline people and see during cold season, how, whatever, how it affects people and having to do with they're they're like college students or something. The point is, is that little bit of adrenaline really affects our nervous system and our, mm-hmm. and how easily we get sick. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think I, I mean, I know I agree with you. I p- fear is, um, is, it's terrible for our bodies. Yep. Um, and even when it's things that um, are scary, COVID was scary. Um, and it doesn't matter whether it's legit fear or not, that ad- that adrenaline, that cortisol, those stress hormones really are going to um, play out in real symptoms in our bodies. Um, and so I worked, I worked a lot, I, I think pretty much from the beginning to not to not fear COVID. That being said, we quarantined hardcore here. <laughs> um, but I just was like, if I get it, I get it. Um, and I'm going to do my part. But I agree at some point in time too, I, I got the vaccine and was like, well, I'm, I'm going to start living again. And, and that was, yeah. you know, was, everybody has their different opinions on this, but the way we deal with the fear, I think is, is the big is the big question. And I love, I actually wanted to ask you about um, the flying and the getting over the fear of flying and stuff. So I'm glad that we already hit that. Um, and just working with, sounds like you're saying kind of working with worst case scenario and being like, it's okay, I've got this. Yeah, you know, um, so that moment, it was not just a, it, it wasn't something that I came to over a, a period of time, the part about the flying. I was literally on the plane and we were flying into Dallas in January of 2010. Um, and I was going for a fundraising event at Cowboy Stadium. And uh, the, there was a snowstorm, there was turbulence, like all the typical, like I would, if it's 80 degrees in Los Angeles with no turbulence, I still was a mess. Mm-hmm. So to fly into Dallas and the plane is going, you know, it's jolting all around and doing all this kind of stuff. And I literally, like I, I had closed my eyes and I was like an outer body experience where I just, I visualized myself going almost like open arms, like a surrender <clears throat> and saying, if this plane goes down, like I just, there's nothing, there's nothing I can do to change it. My arms are open. Whatever needs to happen will happen. Plane landed fine. I flew, I've flown a lot in the last 12 years and I have not once had the sweaty palms or the heart beating out of my chest. I just, it just hasn't occurred. Um, yeah. And but that's that's a hard thing for people to understand because it was so drastic. The only other time that I can recall having an outer body experience like that, uh, where I was almost like I imagine myself like being perched on a on a ledge looking down at Eddie, uh, was it was probably I don't know a month and a half or so ago. Um, I had been dealing with a pretty the most significant relapse of pain since all this began. Uh, it was either at the very end of February or very early part of March mm-hmm. and, um, had a really bad back spasm, uh, which I'd had in the past four years, but got over them very quickly. And in fact, the last time it happened, which was last year, I couldn't move my legs. It was so bad. Um, and I got over that in a day and I got over that in a day, mostly because I had just said like, this will go away. Whatever happens, happens. I'll be fine. I know I'm not going to die. And 
I was bench pressing the next day and I was running the same day and all that kind of stuff. Whereas this one, like I went to the physical therapist, I did the physical therapy exercises, things were not getting better. They were almost getting worse. And I was sitting at a Mariners game. Um, it was the first week they were in town. So give her, it was like April 15th ish. Um, and I had this vision of myself sitting in the seat and just saying to myself, like, you can't control all these situations around you. Um, I was just, and it was about work. It was, it was kind of like all this stuff started coming into my awareness basically. And I just feel, felt my back just free up and it was fine. It was like nothing had happened. So um, really sort of strange instances, but I think that that awareness and just that kind of insight was really just a big, it, it resulted in not having this fear of flying, which was, I mean, if people don't have a fear of flying, like a legitimate, really tough fear of flying, uh, it's miserable. Um, and people have those kind of phobias about all sorts of stuff. Yeah. So like yeah. when it relates to, to COVID again, I don't want to get it. I kept thinking as a, as an athlete, having something that will negatively impact my lungs or my VO2 max or my, my capacity or anything like that was pretty scary in the beginning. Um, but then my, again, when I had this sort of shift in attitude at the end of last year, it then became look like <clears throat> humans have been evolving to different circumstances forever, whether it's climate, whether it's whatever the case is, like people get thrown things and they evolve, they get around them. You could have, you could have a spouse and that spouse dies. The world feels like it stops in that moment, but like it does have to move on. So people do these things to evolve over time. And so I was thinking, well, like, I get this virus. I can't do anything about it. If it's in me, it's in me, whatever. Um, and if, it, if my aerobic capacity goes down or takes a dip or changes, like, it just is what it is. And we'll work with the new, with the new thing. Um, and again, the R-naught of COVID in January was higher than the measles at its highest point. And people had, I mean, people were thinking that, like, wearing a mask outside, walking around outside, and you still may get COVID. Like that's kind of what the thought was around that time, which it may be true or it may not be true. Um, all I know is I had three people COVID positive breathing in my face for 10 days and I did not get sick. So <clears throat> the only variable in that is how I felt at the time. I know it's all really crazy. Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier, uh, the base the the baseball game. Were you, were you at the no? You were you at the Mariners? Mar Mariners are playing the Astros. Yeah, it was. I'm a season ticket holder for my first time ever. Twelve year old oh. Eddie is very excited about thirty six year old Eddie having season tickets to the Mariners. Let me tell you, that's awesome. <laughs> um, okay, so you you're talking about realizing like you you were feeling the need to control everything around you, and I think that's part of what I really like about this work because I'm I'm working as a as a coach helping people um recovery is is to the puzzle the puzzle of like looking at what what's happening internally in my brain what am i feeling pressure from what am i um, trying to control what am i afraid of whether it's an airplane which is not mine um or being judged which is mine um and i'm having a podcast which is just the perfect place <laughs> to be judged on every account um which just goes to show the work that or the uh, the outcome of this work, I guess. Um, and so I think um, I just think it's really interesting to hear each person's story because it's always something so different that you get to work through. I mean, maybe there is somebody out there that is airplanes and they get to work through that, um, you know, or whatnot. So thanks for for sharing that part. Yeah. Um, 
Okay. So I am curious. I, so I don't have kids and I was not married when chronic pain became a big thing. I'm still not married, but I was married before. Um, and so that's like something I can't talk a lot about is, um, what, and I can to, to a degree, um, talk about what it's like to be in chronic pain and be in, in relationship that is very important relationship. Um, uh, I know that for me, healing involved, um, learning to say no and learning to say yes. And we could get, that's a whole different subject, um, boundaries and also not being defensive on both ends. Um, and so I'd love to just hear you talk a little bit about like what it was like being a dad and, and a husband and, and if you were married, um, when you first started experiencing chronic pain, um, that, that anything you have to share about that piece. Yeah. So, um, I was married at the time, uh, still am married to the same person. Um, and the, uh, I think of the chronic pain element as having two pretty distinctive mm-hmm. sides. So there was like, ultimately for everybody, there becomes a time where your pain is getting so bad that you can't ignore it anymore. And now you're going to the doctor all the time and the, sh- the scale has shifted. Go to the doctor all the time. You're doing physical therapy all the time, like that kind of thing. So pre that, uh, I would have tendonitis that popped up every three months. I would have, um, some kind of a flu or something like that, that would occur usually sometime in December. And then again, sometime in March. Um, so I had a lot of these really predictable patterns that didn't really cause any sort of an issue in terms of like the fluidity of my wife and I's marriage or the family dynamic or whatever, except for getting the pseudo flu, which I don't think was the real flu, but the pseudo flu or whatever. Um, it was about five months after our daughter was born. And the thing that really sucked about that is that uh, I was kept to the bedroom and my wife and the baby were had to be somewhere else in the house. Um, and that was tough because she slept uh-huh. in a bassinet in our room at the time. So it was really, that was kind of tough for 10 days. Um, but, you know, my wife is very roll with the punches, which is one of the reasons why she's really great because I'm not really roll with the punches <laughs> quite as well. Okay. Um, I, I take things much more personal. I'm much more sensitive, that kind of thing. That isn't really the makeup of her. We're sort of like non-traditional in the sense of how you would typically think of like a masculine man that lets things roll off his back and that kind of stuff. That's much more my wife versus a, a feminine female that may, and again, these are stereotypes, a feminine female that may take things more personally is more emotional. That's much more me. Yeah. Um, so uh Then there came the period of time. So I had shoulder surgery in the spring of 2016, um, went through, did all the rehab, didn't have any sort of weird pain issues during the rehab process. It was the week that I was going to get medically cleared that everything entirely changed. It was like the inside of my body just exploded. Um, What were some of your symptoms? So you had shoulder I just say this because people want to be able to relate to their symptoms, you know? Yeah. So I, I had a shoulder dislocation, um, on Halloween mm-hmm. the year before 2015, uh, so I had a shoulder dislocation, um, because of the way that insurance works and, and all that people were, so again, this is the very end of October, every appointment with a specialist, every MRI, everything was booked going out to the end of the year. Cause everybody's trying to get their deductible met and, do all this kind of thing. So to have an injury and then a need for imaging that late in the year just wasn't going to happen. So I got in in the first or second week of January in 2016. Um, 
I was taking, they kept prescribing me painkillers because they're like, we can't get you in for an image to even diagnose you. And none of the clinical tests are showing any sort of a problem. So we don't know what you have, but we can't image it. So here's some painkillers. So I did that for about two and a half months, um, which sucks. Cause like, I've never done a drug. I hardly ever drink. I've never smoked a cigarette. So to have, to be taking painkillers constantly, yeah. um, was a little rough on the stomach and like, it just, you know, wasn't, wasn't great. Um, I still didn't like having to call back or have the pharmacy call into the doctor to write me a script or reevaluate me every 30 days. That's, I just felt like it was kind of embarrassing as an athlete to do that. Hmm. Um, so I got in in January, had the imaging done, got diagnosed with this really obscure injury that I couldn't really even find much literature about it at all. Like it was just one of those injuries that hardly anybody ever gets. The outcomes are very poor. And I was just thinking like, I mean, sure, maybe I have this thing, but like I can do a lot of the stuff that they're saying somebody that has this can't do. And I'm like, why it didn't pop up on the, so I just had a lot of doubt um, initially, which kind of led to me going to see doctor to doctor to doctor to doctor, basically until I got a, a diagnosis that I felt satisfactory. The thing that was odd was I would take my imaging to these different doctors and all of them had a different diagnosis based yeah. on what they saw, which sure. is really frustrating as a patient. Um, but eventually I found the uh, Dr. Edward Calfane, who is the Seahawks surgeon. If, if any of the Seahawks ever go down, he's the first doctor out there. And every time I see him on TV, I was, oh, there's Dr. Calfane. Um, had surgery with him. Uh, I went through and did the rehab process. Um, I was having a lot of like numbness. And uh, again, this is an instance where they got in there, they did the surgery, but the things that um, I was diagnosed with uh, post-surgery still did not, are you still there? Yeah. Okay. Um, it went away for a second. I think it's my oh, mom was calling yes. me, but the, uh, I'm going to put her on, I'm going to put her on do not disturb. Everything disappeared on my, on my phone uh, for a second. Okay. So um, his diagnosis did not align with what my symptoms were. I was having a lot of nerve problems. I was having a lot of just kind of weird yeah, numbing issues or whatever. His diagnosis kinda... did not match your symptoms. Right. So the diagnosis even after the surgery, which was torn rotator cuff, torn labrum, and I had a, a fracture at the top of my left arm, um, did not match up with a lot of the nerve issues that I was having. Okay. Uh, and I remember um, distinctively his PA, his physician's assistant, uh, Tanner, who was there um, Dr. Calfin left the room and I had asked Tanner, I'm like, torn rotator cuff. I'm like, I, I'm doing a lot of the stuff that a torn rotator cuff wouldn't like, that doesn't make any sense. And he was like, you know, he's, he's, <laughs> he's in his residency. So he just finishes school and a really, and this has always stuck with me. I didn't think much about it then, but since then I've always thought, he said to me that they could easily image a hundred people, you know, without pain or whatever, or a hundred people. Half of them who uh, who have pain will have torn rotator cuff. The other half will not on imaging. So he's like, pretty much after you hit the age of forty or fifty, everybody's got a torn rotator cuff. A small percentage will yeah. have pain. And I was thinking, God, that's really. But now Something's looking wrong. back, I'm like, yeah, like there's like something that's that's really weird. But I just didn't think much of it. Whatever. So I go through rehab. Um, the week that I was going to get medical clearance for all activities, I start getting just. I mean, unreal spasming throughout my upper and mid back. It was, get, I couldn't feel, I'd try and type at work and I couldn't type, my, my fingers were going, so were so numb. And I was really freaked out. Uh, the first thing I thought was that um, 
I had just ruined the repair that I spent all this time rehabbing. And I went and worked physical therapist. They would do clinical tests. They're like, there's no way your capsule's way too tight. There's no way that you tore this, that you tore it again. There's, that's not what's going on. We don't know what's going on, but that's not what's going on. So this led to me going and seeing 25 different medical professionals, some doctors, chiros, physical therapists, rolfers, pretty much anybody. I drove from, see, I got off of work at two o'clock on a, on a Thursday, drove to Helena, Montana, had a procedure done on my neck. We did a procedure on Friday morning. We did another procedure Saturday morning. I drove home. I wasn't even outside of the Montana state limits before I felt worse. So um, I just felt pretty hopeless, uh, you know, by, by that point. But then I went down to UW and saw a doctor, the doctor for the Huskies. She is also, I'm a Husky season ticket holder as well. She's on the sidelines. Every time a player goes down, she's the first one out there. Okay. She brought up to me, she did, she took all my imaging. So she had my original MRI. She had the EMG tests I did after that. She had the ultrasounds that I did after that, showing all these problems and disturbances. And she had asked me, well, what is your life like? Do you have children? Do you have a wife? What do you do for work? You know, all this kind of stuff. And, um, and I said, I'm in sales, but I'm not stressed. And that was, like, that was kind of, yeah, that, that's where it kind of tipped her off was like, so you have kids you you're in this high pressure job you say you're not stressed like are you sure um and i'm like yeah no i'm not stressed and she was like you know what i find is that uh stress or stressful situations can lead to real physical problems and i was like okay but i have this imaging that's right over there and she said point blank i don't care what the tests say here's been my observation um and Uh same thing with her right i did all these clinical tests that i was passing yet all this imaging was suggesting something else and I was still having all these symptoms. So she wrote me a script to go see the sports psychologist for the football team, who I didn't end up seeing, but uh, mostly because it wasn't in network. And I was like, I spent so much money on medical stuff by now, but that led me on a path of like, maybe I'm just looking in the wrong arena. Um, I don't know how we got all the way there, by the way, but you were talking about relationships. As far as with my kids, um, I'll say that the, the way to which if they're having a problem or they're upset about something or they're crying about something, whatever it is, uh, especially if it's from something external, something happened at school, something happened with a friend, something happened with a kid down the street, not like I fell down and I hurt myself. That's really different. Um, but if they come in crying, the first question that I will ask is how does that, and I got this from my wife too, but how does that make you feel? Yeah. And really just trying to label the feeling yeah. and label the emotion really kind of takes a lot of the drama out of it. Um, and allows you to say, I am the drama, like inner family drama or in their brains, the story around it in their brains. Yeah. Because the, the, the biggest part of the story is not that Hannah wouldn't let me play with the other kids in the cul-de-sac. The bigger part of the story is that that makes me angry or that makes me sad or whatever the case is. And my, we went camping last week and my youngest went on this just tirade about a bunch of she was just up in arms about a lot of different things um, on this camping trip and then said, it makes me so angry. You make me so angry. Oh. Like, well, you're, you're four years old, but like, look at that speech and how she can say that makes me so angry and just how eloquent and how appropriate that was because we can work with angry. We can't work with a hundred different stories. Um, that I would say is probably the biggest thing as far as relationships go with family members is that. Um, I have noticed like residuals around siblings and things like that. Like I have a sibling relationship that I feel is fairly strained mostly because 
He's very much in the medicalized model of everything is we're machines and this is levers and handles and they can, you know, they all break and everything has, every symptom has a diagnosis behind it and kind of always chasing pain. Is he Um, in the medical profession? No, 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 he's not, not, not even close. No, um, I start, and, I literally start sweating when you start talking about that, because it's just such an awkward place. You either yeah. have to like suppress your thoughts about it. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's, that's a really positive thing that came out of COVID that I would joke with people is that <clears throat> gone were the days of having family get togethers 10 times a year where everybody sits around and talks about all of their health yeah. issues and ailments and pain and all that kind of stuff. It was, I forgot we had a get together recently and I was thinking, I was so nice. I forgot how nice it was to not talk to not hear 10 people talk about everything that hurts right now. Um, but I can clear a room pretty fast by saying, what's going on in your emotional world right now? Right? Like, they're out of here. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of the, that's the relationship and dynamics part of it. I, um, I'm curious if you found it all, uh, once I had done the work, I found that I was able to actually be present with people that I was with because when I was in chronic pain, I was just so um, uh, obsessed with is the wrong word, but focused on my symptoms and my pain that I just, I just couldn't, I was so worried that I couldn't be present. I was so busy trying to want to live um, that the person in front of me, I could barely listen to. It sounds like maybe that's not, is that a part of your story at all? Um, I mean, sort of related, not really in the same way. The thing that that makes me think of is I couldn't really be present at the beginning or the end of any particular day. And that was mostly because I was preoccupied looking on my phone, researching symptoms at the beginning and the end of every day. The other thing um, is being very resistant to uh, scheduling or making plans that were far out because I would always think, what if I have to have a surgery in two months or three months Mm. or four months or whatever? So I can't, I remember my wife was planning a trip for us to go to Europe for two or three weeks. Um, I think she bought the tickets in November, December of 2016. And we were going to take that trip in March or April of 2017. So we're talking four months or five months or something like that. Um, And I was really worried because I was thinking like, what if I, and then like trying to plan, I was literally, I remember like sitting in a flat in London and in Edinburgh, like researching doctors that I could talk to about certain things that I was having. Mm -hmm. Um, So like, that's kind of what I think of when you talk about not being present, that is certainly the definition of not being present. Yeah. Yeah. Slightly different. I don't know, approach to not being present, Mm -hmm. but yeah. Yes. I I had planned in the uh, summer of 2020, I was going to go to Prague. It was going to be my first time in Europe. Um, But I was still in, chronic pain at that time. It was yeah. right before I discovered it. And um, I was going to go with my closest friend. And <laughs> the amount of planning that I did around my symptoms for that trip was crazy. I mean, even just finding a place to stay, I was like looking for a place with carpet because walking for me was just terrible. Yeah. Um, and just like the, it had to be really close to like shot and sh- tourist sites, if you will, so that so that I could just walk a very short way to either the site or to an Uber, you know, just like really planning my life around that. Um, In one sense, like, I I don't know about you, but so I had insomnia the other night, um, all night long, couldn't sleep. I know why. Um, And then the next morning I woke up and I was just like, it just reminded me of back in the day. And I just 
I was so freaking proud of myself for the fact that I made it through that time in chronic pain and chronic insomnia. Yeah. Um, and I don't know about you, but when I look back to what I went through, I, I literally want to cry because of how proud I am that I made it through it. Um, not that I had a different choice, but still, I don't, uh, do you ever get that, that feeling of just like, yeah, um, there was a, it was like three weeks before the, uh, the pandemic happened. And I only remember this cause it was taken at the CrossFit gym I went to, <clears throat> but I was doing, um, this might mean nothing to anybody that <laughs> there in, in, in weightlifting, there is, uh, there's a variety of different lifts, but we were doing, um, hang clean and jerks at my gym. Yep. And I think I did, I did like 255 pounds or 260 pounds or something like that. Um, and I remember I put it, uh, I don't know why I put it up on my LinkedIn, which is highly bit cause I'm in the business community and, um, just saying how, uh, I told this story about being proud of myself that I could do this because here's where I was just a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, but, uh, nobody cared, sorry. Um, but, uh, the reason that I had done that is that I did a full backup of all my pictures and videos on my phone, my computer, my iPad, like all that kind of stuff into Google photos a few months ago at the end of last year, it was like a big project. I did facial recognition for everybody. So now I could like, I could go in and look for, I could just type my dog. I could just type Lucy and she just sat up. I could type Lucy and Eddie and it'll bring me every picture that it has Lucy and Eddie. So it was a big project. Um, I was looking at pictures from, or videos of periods of time when yeah. I was at the throes and in the real abyss of this. Um, and I'm looking at myself, like even just picking a barbell up of 45 pounds and you can see the wincing that's going on. Um, mm -hmm. because I would get down, I would pick it up. I would put it over my head and all my fingertips would be numb when it would go over my head. So to, you know, to go from, from that to eventually what I could be doing two years later, when the whole thought of I'm in my late thirties now, so I'd have been in my mid thirties when I was looking at this. I was in the throes of chronic pain when I was at my late twenties and my early thirties. And you would think that a 29 year old should be more stronger, more virile, more capable than a person in their mid thirties. Um, but I was the complete opposite. So getting better with getting better and stronger with age, when there's plenty of people yes. my age that I've known for 20 years or whatever, that now talk and their rhetoric is more that they're sort of at the end of the road of being mm -hmm. an athlete or because all these physical issues or limitations or whatever, um, that they think are being put on them. But to me, it's more them putting it on themselves. And I feel like sometimes that makes me sound too much like a Tony Robbins or something like that, but it's just been my experience, um, because I went through it. Uh, so yeah. 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 Um, I'm just gonna toot my horn a little bit. <laughs> just, <laughs> I, I, um, just you mentioning like lifting 255 pounds or something. Um, and just how much of this work is about you progressing. And, and while I was in pain, I could, just, I just couldn't, I, there's no way nothing. Right. Um, yeah. and I did, I did a power clean with just, a, yeah. just, just a 40, just the bar, just the 45 pound bar, but yeah. super proud of myself for getting there. Yeah. Right. Because, um, risks, I mean, for me, it was kind of all over pain. Um, and so getting to, to that place is just such a, um, I don't know, a joy, really, really, it's such a cheesy word, but I'm excited. <laughs> yeah. um, you talk a lot about um, the hobbies and the things you enjoy, which your background is indicative of. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
but um what has what has um just hobbies and passions and stuff meant for your journey um i'm not sure if you had all these passions pre um recovery or and and what you what role you think it has in healing yeah um i think they're critical first of all steve ozanich in his book talks about the importance he talks about the arts the importance of the arts with mm-hmm. recovery um he he's talking more about left brain right brain stuff and all that kind of stuff but i I think really anything that you can kind of occupy your brain space with is a good thing. If you can do an activity and also think about all your pain issues at one time, your head's too full. So uh, I love, I have a passion for podcasting, um, but motorcycle riding, particularly now off-road adventure motorcycle riding and the technical aspect behind that, because it takes an enormous amount of concentration, really tremendous conditioning, which I I was not doing any of that before. This was just a hobby in the last three years that I started. I was writing for a long time. Um, when I was deep in chronic pain, I was not writing at all. So I would look, if you looked at my garage, there was, it was just, the garage was a mess. I wasn't lifting. I wasn't working out. The most I would do was go down to the track in Edmonds and just walk circles. The motorcycle was mm-hmm. dusty. Okay. So like, there just wasn't a lot to look forward to. It was yeah. just, I remember, uh, and like political views aside or whatever, Joe Biden was on The View, this was like 2014 or 2015, way before the most, the the election that he uh, ran in. But he was talking about how much of a necessity it is for human beings to have something to look forward to, just in general. And I think about that a lot because, again, when I was in the throes of this, I didn't have anything to look forward to because every night was spent researching pain and symptoms and every morning was spent re- and it was just this groundhog's day over and over and over and that's that was what became the norm is always being hyper vigilant how does my shoulder feel today how do my how does my neck feel today how does my back feel today so there was no room for hobbies so i think they're incredibly i i think like that's my phrase like get a hobby like if somebody's worked up about anything whether it's pain or political issues or whatever it's like get a hobby because that really like without trying to sound like a smart aleck that's a big piece of it um so i've got my one wheel electric skateboard i i'm the only 36 year old with my hair halfway down my back with tattoos that is riding a one wheel electric motorcycle or one wheel electric skateboard around edmonds i will i assure you i love um, it of that yeah uh, I wear all my gear though. I always wear elbow pads, knee pads. I wear wrist guards. I wear a helmet. I'm not a fool. Um, but also like uh, adventure motorcycle riding. And I love doing that and being really challenged with that, I think is, is critical. Um, but then also you mentioned it earlier. We didn't really talk in depth about this at all, but being able to set boundaries of certain things. Yeah. Work and sales for me for the longest time was the beginning, middle and end of my existence as a person. So it's like, my name is Eddie. I am a salesperson. But that's now way down the line. Um, it's way down the line. Uh, and 24 was one of my, it still is one of my favorite shows ever. And I tell my wife, my favorite line Jack Bauer ever used. He did, he did so many great things, negotiating with terrorists, uh, taking out terrorists, doing all this kind of stuff. The best line he ever had in that show was he was telling a guy that headed up the counterterrorist unit for the United States, who was very much a yes man. And he was just, he just kind of, he wasn't, wasn't doing things that, that better benefited the greater good as much as saying yes to the to his superiors above him. And Bauer tells him, you know, the ones that the people that matter in this world are the ones who can say no. 
And I'm like, uh, I use that all the time. So boundaries uh, is a big part of that too. Yeah, totally. Um, I, I think that's one of my favorite things about healing. I do um, physically healing was the goal of all the work that I did yeah. and probably you too. But things like that, I, I actually feel like now they were, uh, they're what I value the most. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, okay, so when you started um, the healing process, most people use graded exposure. And I think maybe I've heard you say that you did not take that pr approach. Is that is that true? Yeah, um, I never even heard of, Sarno talked about it later on in books because I read okay. Healing Back Pain, which I think was maybe the early 90s. His next book he did, uh, which I think was from 1997 or 1998, the uh, Mind Body Prescription, he mentioned graded exposure. Yeah. Previously though, the book that the only book I had read was Healing Back Pain, which he said, get back to the most vigorous activity immediately. So like I read it a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then Monday I walked into my gym and I prepaid for three months of CrossFit and weightlifting classes. So I was like, I'm financially all in. I'm financially all in. So like I'm getting back in. I was, I couldn't feel uh -huh. my hands lifting a barbell seven days ago. And now I'm going to be, now I'm jumping full scale in. I didn't, I, I didn't scale anything. I did linear progressions, but there was no exercise or uh, lift that I didn't do regardless of how much it, it hurt in the process or hurt before. And what I was finding was that I'm doing these workouts and I just sort of, the expectation of pain when it was over just sort of went away. Whereas that period of time where the pain was really bad, but I was still trying to lift. And I kept expecting as soon as this workout ends, I'm going to be in horrific pain. Yeah. And guess yeah. what? I was every single time, yeah. but that just kind of went away. And it just kind of, I just wasn't thinking about it. Like I just wasn't really, again, it's, it's another one of those, whatever happens, happens sort of thing. And I would just, I'm going to snatch this and maybe I'll dislocate my shoulder and maybe I'll be in pain for months or whatever. Um, but you know, whatever happens, happens and I'll be fine. And I found that I never was in pain after a workout uh, or a session or a competition or anything. Um, wow. And again, I, I think that it just, yeah, I, I, I've learned so much about um, just from myself, the nervous system and sort of how, being at ease versus kind of being a little bit more wound up and how much of a difference that is a real world example right now, today is day 18 of my, um, my beloved cat went missing on June 22nd. Oh, I heard um, this. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, I have been entirely muted on social media except for animal finding groups on Facebook oh. next door and all these sites because I've been just so, um, I keep trying to come up with the term, but very much having an angle of like um, intrusive thoughts is not the right term, but basically I don't really have much of a drive to do much of anything except for look for this cat, which I have spent an exhausting amount of hours doing. Mm -hmm. um, and I look for her with all of my soul. I, I adopted her in December of 2009. She was one day away from euthanasia because she had been there for too long at the shelter oh. um okay. but she was found on the side of the freeway in arlington uh which is it's 70 miles an hour it's a very it's a busy stretch of highway in our region um she was picked up there probably a stray maybe a feral um 
And I walked into the animal shelter in December of 09 and just, I was like, this one's really cute. Can I go into, and I've never owned a cat before. Took her into the, uh, I don't even know what they call it. It's the room that you go with a puppy or a, or a cat uh, to see, you know, do you two get along? Like, yeah. did you acclimate to each other and all that? Yeah. Um, and my perception of cats is that they were always very moody and they weren't kind and they were just, they'll scratch your <laughs> eyes out. That's just kind of always what I thought. Yeah. Um, and this cat was just, she was weaving through my legs. She was rubbing up against me. She had this deep purr. So I kind of always <laughs> felt this like really strong bond with her. I adopted her, of course, on the spot. Um, so I've had her for 13 years. Uh, and she sleeps with my kids every single, I mean, she's like the best of friends with my kids. Yeah. Uh, she's just a big part of the family. We had to put down one of our dogs in March and we got him the same year that we got her. So they kind of grew up together. Um, God, this other podcast listener sent me this email the other day asking if it was possible that Stella went looking for Barkley, which I thought was just like the sweetest thing ever, if that's what she's out doing. Um, but I was walking around this morning. Uh, I still believe she's alive. I haven't found anything to, to, to suggest otherwise a predator or anything like that. I don't think that's the case. So I'm out looking for her this morning and I just, I was kind of taking my, I've been in a sort of an angry contentious mood for about three weeks now, which is another reason why I've just kind of stayed off social media because it kind of, if you don't have anything really nice or constructive to say, just keep it to yourself. Um, <laughs> and I was thinking this morning, I was just like, this is crushing to me. However, it's another one of those senses where it's, it's, it's one of the sadder things that I can recall happening. Um, but I don't have any control over a, the fact that she left and hasn't been found. Um, I don't have any control over whether I will find her or not. I can, but ultimately if I'm going to find her, I'm going to find her. If she's going to come back, she's going to come back. It's almost like a freight train that is moving with her on it. And I can't pull that train back. I can hope that I will find her, whatever the destination is, or somebody will call me, um, and say they found her or whatever the case is. But that's sort of a real situation that's going on right now yeah. that is, for me, like as sad as it gets. Uh, but I'm trying to apply, and I don't have a, there's not a pain issue. It's a anger issue. It's a, it's a just frustrated, and the fuse is shorter. I'm using more curse words. Like all the things that people don't really talk about with themselves um, mm -hmm. that I've sort of been facing the last few weeks because of the absence of this sweet, cat who's you know she's she's nine pounds she's 13 years old but she's uh incredibly energetic she can still leap a six foot fence like there's no like there's like she could when she was a kitten um so i'm trying to apply the same mind body principles that i've used that have been really successful with trying to navigate this situation yeah yeah i was wondering about that um did you in your healing, did you do a lot of emotional work? Kind of, I mean, what we're talking about right now with the cat is a prime example of something that we want to verbalize how we're actually feeling and the emotions that are behind it. Um, um, did you do a lot of that work when you when you were healing? I've heard you say that journaling is not your thing, um, but was it a part of that original turning around? Um, I would say it was much more of a, I'll use the term logic based as opposed to like journal based. Okay. Um, the reason that journaling hasn't been my thing is that I kind of feel like I sort of write the same story over and over and over. And to me, that kind of gets just very, there's not, 
not helpful. I'm not getting, yeah, I'm not, I'm not getting anywhere. And a lot of people do and it works great for them. And that's, and that's fine. The way that I applied it is that the most effective way that I could think of applying it was what is every symptom. And I did this the sec, probably this, I, it took three nights to read healing back pain. The second night I would, I'd read and then I'd sit there and I'd make a two column list. And I would say, what are all the symptoms that I can ever remember having that lasted, you know, more than a few, more than a, a week or a couple of weeks or whatever. And then to the right of that, I would write down what is every, what was going on in my life at that time? What was going on in March of 07? What was going on in March of 06? What was going on in July of 06, right? And when I would develop these different issues and I started finding this perfect one-to-one correlation of these really hurtful, painful things that were happening to my body or to illnesses I was having um, and some sort of a pretty significant stressor in my life. So that was really how I used it in the beginning. And then, and I would say this verbalized, but in my head, um, I'd be looking at those two columns and I'd say, well, how did that make me feel? And was it anger? Was it feeling sad? Was it grief at the time? And being, I saw this really great meme in the last couple of days and I don't even remember who posted it. So I can't thank them, but, um, it's two people. It's, it's these two, they're not people, they're characters and they're standing. Uh, somebody had said, what was it? I was angry. It was something along the line. I'm paraphrasing. It was something along the lines of, um, I was so angry for a long time until I was introduced to grief. And, uh, yeah, it, there's just certain emotions. I think people have a, a difficult time really, um, defining. And so like, as an example, uh, the company that I worked at previously, which I was very successful at for a very long time, um, towards the end of it, the final year or so, I was not at all the performer that I had been in the several years prior. Uh, and I, the way that I would talk about that was how annoying I felt like some of the, the employees or processes or company was or all this, like kind of the surface level stuff. And then eventually I got to, I was angry, but then eventually it got to grief where I was sort of grieving this previous success that I had. Um, and going through a grief process of a loss, like really having a Mm -hmm. loss of this life that I knew, and then it becoming this new thing. And I think like looking back, whether that dislocated shoulder and those injuries and the surgery and all that stuff was ever needed, because I don't know if it was or not, um, the dislocation definitely happened, but all the residual symptoms that like, would I have been fine? I think I probably would have actually been. Um, but there was definitely a grieving process that I think was really messing with my system that week where I was going to be cleared for all activity. I think there was a grieving process of thinking how much, how good of an athlete I was before any of this stuff happened and having to come all the way back from that. And just how big that mountain seemed to be um, was really just a lot to handle uh, really difficult. And so looking back, those, that's some stuff that I think about too. Um, Yeah. That's, that's big. That list, I feel like is just is really important to, to make that, that connection between the symptom and the real emotion um, that's Mm -hmm. happening um, there. So I have two cats and one is absolutely lovely, sounds similar to yours. And one is terrible. (laughs) (laughs) She is uh, for sure what you, you explained. I mean, she scratches people, you know, she's whatever. Um, but she's definitely my favorite. I yeah. just, I, you know, I just, I just love her. Um, and, and one time I couldn't find her for seven days. Um, and it was, it was, ter- it was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
and I put up posters, uh, all this stuff. Oh my gosh, I'm just remembering it, my husband at the time and I were separated and he like saw one somehow and was like, what's happening with the cat? And it was this big thing. Anyways, um, that was not here nor there. Um, yeah. But um, I walked the neighborhood every night the, yeah. in, the, in the pitch dark, um, just hoping to like hear her, you know, um, couldn't find her. And then finally, I went to I went to all the, you know, the pounds or the lost, whatever they're called. Um, and finally, one day, I was just sitting on my back deck, looking in the there's like city property behind mine and then the neighbors mm -hmm. over here um, to the right. And I see my cat in the wow. garage, like the shed of the neighbor's house. Um, and so she's been locked in their garage the whole time and yeah. they are out of town. Um, and I can't, I, I can't get her out. And I don't think at the time about calling the police to this day, I'm like, I should have just called the police and had them come get her out, get her out. Cause I yep. did call the neighbors. They were over in Woodby Island and they wouldn't, they wouldn't, they wouldn't come back or tell me where their key was. Um, so I had to leave her in there a couple, a couple days. So anyways, um, I, I get it. It's just, it's really hard. And I'm, I guess I'm wondering for you, like knowing the work we do, are, are you feeling like your symptom then is, is the anger right now? Like you're not having a physical symptom and, and do you recognize like an under, besides anger, if anger is the symptom, is there an underlying emotion that you, that you are, I mean, I'm guessing you're not angry. Your cat's gone. There's a different emotion there. Yeah. You know, I've been trying to get more philosophical on this and, um, and trying to think about like, what is what is it about? Obviously, it's very sad that this member of our family is not here anymore um, mm -hmm. for the moment. Again, I think she's alive out there. I do think she is going to be back in our homes at some point. It's been 18 days. Uh, however, reading miraculous stories in some of these Facebook groups about their cats being gone three months, four months, six months, just showing up, like just trotting in the house like nothing happened. What like I it's like a teenager walking in the house and you being like, where were you? Like, why were you late for curfew? You know, um, so I, I, I think that uh, so maybe you will be angry with your cat. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, yeah, my wife keeps saying when Stella comes home, she's in big trouble unless she's locked somewhere in that or stolen or whatever the case, you know, whatever the case is. Um, and one thing my wife also says that Stella, like if she can't go outside and kind of do her roaming thing and she like patrols the cul-de-sac and then comes back. Um, that she would just sit at the door and just meow, 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 like will not leave you alone. Yeah. So Jenny's like, if she's locked in somebody's house, like good luck. Like if she was stolen, like good luck if that person's not gonna let her go out and experience some of the outside world. Um, but hmm. so we had kids and our first daughter was born in 2014. So we got um, Dickie who, we, who was a pug that we put down in 2019. Uh, we got, we got him in 06 and then Stella and Barkley. So we put Barkley down three months ago and then Stella's been missing for 18 days. We got, uh, both of them in 09. So I was thinking yesterday, um, that to me, I think maybe the deeper part of this is again, going back to the pre-surgery life and the post-surgery life, grieving what it was that I had before, sort of grieving that Stella's sort of the last link to the life that we had before we had kids and it was just us mm. um, when it was just us because everything literally has changed since we had kids except for Stella is the last conduit we 
live in a different house. We live in a different neighborhood. We drive different cars. We have different careers. Uh, we're, we're much older now. I mean, everything is completely different. Yeah. The only thing that is the same is Stella. Yeah. So she's kind of the conduit that connects this. A thread of consistency. Life. Yeah. And also like, you know, that's, we weren't even married then. Uh, we were barely engaged then when I got, when I got Stella um, or when I adopted Stella. So we have, again, like this whole pre-life of like being two kids that were just in love. And, you know, we, we had no, not a care in the world. We could sleep until noon every weekend. Like, you know, we didn't have all of these additional responsibilities all the time. Um, and so that might've kind of been, it's almost like a piece of your child. I wasn't a child when I adopted her. Uh, I was 23, but um, it's a massive piece of my early adulthood that is not here. And I think that that's a part of it too. Yeah. Are you petting Lucy right now? No, she's, oh. uh, she, no, she, she's not moving for the world. Even if I, oh. if I held a, a big steak right now, I didn't think she'd wake up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Uh, I'm just seeing the time and I want to respect your time. It's been actually been an hour. Yeah. Um, so we should probably stop this, even though I love it. Um, <laughs> do you have any like parting thoughts or anything you want to share or? Yeah, maybe the only, uh, maybe the only thing for anybody listening to this is, uh, I tend to find that a good, where there's smoke, there's fire. So like we were camping last week. This is perfect. Before the fire would start to ignite, you could still see the smoke. Where, when, when were you camping and where? We left uh, the 5th and we were in concrete, Washington on the Skagit River. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I was also so there. So anyways. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we left the 5th and we got back on fr at Friday night or something like that. Um, so we were only gone three or four days. Um, so uh, setting the campfire, I kept thinking, okay, like we had a hell of a time setting a fire the first night. I think it was, I think we bought wet wood from the Ace hardware mm. that was near. Um but we could always see the smoke, but not necessarily the fire. So I think of that as in the time right before I'll get a relapse or a symptom or something like that, I will dwell on things. And it doesn't even necessarily matter the thing that I'm dwelling on. If I'm dwelling, it could be anything. It could be, I'm thinking about, this was a, a popular one towards the end of last year. I could be thinking about getting rid of my iPhone and switching to an Android phone. And that is all I am researching yeah. Is this a great move? What sort of features am I going to gain? What am I going to lose? What am I going to do this? Anytime I'm dwelling on something excessively, I know that there's something that is really bubbling under the surface. And if I don't address it, whatever it is, um, or at least lean in and feel whatever that emotion is, that I'm going to have symptoms shortly thereafter. Yeah. So like, what I would say is that if you're listening to this and you're, and you're find yourself going back and ruminating over the same thing over and over and over it doesn't have to be a life thing or an emotion thing or a sad thing or a stressful thing or whatever anything um it could, like I, I remember uh before i had my relapse that occurred maybe in april or so of last year i had been doing this comparison between two different motorcycles should be a very happy thing right but i was researching and researching and researching and, yeah. and thinking about the outcomes and what would happen and would i have more fun with this or would i not and all this kind of stuff and just stupid stuff like that that shouldn't even play. You know, I think a lot of times people will think that the events that will lead to a pain issue when you talk about mind body to somebody that doesn't understand it, think that it has to be 
my grandmother passed away, my spouse yeah. passed away, my kid is very sick, my kind of all of these, I think that it can just be your your biggest clue could be I'm going back over in my head over and over and over and over and over about something. And if you start yes. doing that, you're 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 distracting yourself. Like it's a distraction. So what are you distracting yourself from? Yeah. I remember um the doctor asking me if I was stressed at the time of chronic pain. And my answer was no. And I look back and I'm like, are you kidding me? You were you were, you were so stressed out just because you're yeah. hiding it and trying to to suppress it and keep it inside does not mean you're not stressed out. It actually means yeah. you're not stressed out. It's the it's yeah. the opposite of that. Yeah. And that hypervigilant brain, I think, is kind of what you're explaining or describing is it doesn't it, it's like over the the strangest things i yep. will find myself just cycling over and i'm like this is not important and yet yes there is something super important underneath it there's for me it's always a fear there's always some obscure weird but very real fear that's you know just taking over the dialogue in my brain and for you know you're whatever researching sprint phone or whatever you're talking yeah. about yep, yep. yeah so all right well thank you i appreciate you a ton taking your time to do this i don't know if yeah. it's your lunch or whatever but um yeah i'm and i always say i'm i'm in sales i've worked for a company but i see myself as an independent contractor it's one of the advantages of sales is you sort of work on your own schedule and if i want to go out and make money i can go out and make money but if i want to chill and talk to you for an hour and 15 minutes it was lovely and thank you for having me yeah you're welcome all right we will um, see you next time then. Okay. All right. Thank Thanks, Jennifer. Bye. Bye. Bye.